Reeves, and it's my privilege to read to you the Word of God this morning. We'll be reading from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. <clears throat> if you're using the Bibles from the back table, that uh, will begin on page 987. Page 987, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. <clears throat> but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Word of God. A seat. <clears throat> amen, amen. Well, we are in the midst of a series called In Light of His Coming, and uh, that title came from this passage also happens to be one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the Bible, which I appreciate Luke uh, allowing me to preach through. But uh, no, it should be fun. We'll have a good time together today. Um, I, I was reminded of an illustration for um, kind of a, a point I want to make here, so I thought I'd start there. A few weeks ago, <clears throat> my, my wife plays Frisbee, Ultimate Frisbee, with some of the guys from the church on s Saturday mornings. Yeah, who plays? Yeah, several of you. Yeah, it's a good time. Um, and I get the privilege of watching my kids while she is gone. I have to remind myself that. And uh, it's not babysitting if they're your kids. Um, so I get the privilege of watching my kids. I had the idea a few, a few weeks back, the weather was nice, is let's take the kids to the park, get them all worn out so that when they come home, they won't, you know, destroy the place as much as they normally do. Um, and so we decided to go down to the park. I loaded them up into the, into the wagon, and down we go, and we're playing, and I'm, I'm just not feeling like they're exerting enough energy, and I'm seeing the writing on the wall. So I decided, hey, let's have a race, right? Let's have a race. There's a long 
uh, bike path in this, in this area, and uh, it's about a third of a mile, which is long for little, little feet. I have a seven-year-old uh, at the time, a five-year-old, she's now six, and then a four-year-old. And I, and I said, okay, let's, we're going to have a race, guys, we're going to have a race. And they're not looking very motivated, so I, I reach into my bag of tricks, and I pull out the ultimate motivation in our family. We don't let our kids have a lot of candy. We try to stay away from the sugar stuff if we can. And I say, if you win, whoever wins will get a piece of candy. Now they're really into it, right? Now they're really excited. Candy's like the ultimate thing. So uh, they line up. I count down, send them off, and away they go. They go out as, as hard and as fast as they can. And I'm trailing behind with Judah in the wagon. Um, and about 40 yards in, Benjamin, my four-year-old, littler legs than the rest, uh, realizes he's not, he doesn't have a chance at, at this race. He's falling behind. And so he stops, and I'm like, oh, man, why'd you stop, buddy? Keep going, keep going. Uh, and, I, and he did something else. He didn't just stop. He started weeping, just absolutely devastated, right? That, that hope of candy has now been completely lost, and it's utter despair. So I'm thinking, maybe that wasn't, a, maybe I didn't handle that right. So I come up. I grab him by the hand. I say, come on, let's go, let's go. And he's weeping. Uh, and in about, you know, half to two-thirds of the way through the race, um, Harper falls behind, and she realizes, I can't keep up with Bethany. I'm, I'm, I'm done. So she stops. And I'm thinking, gosh, haven't I told these kids anything about keep going, you know, endure? Um, and she doesn't only stop, but she starts weeping, <laughs> just like Benjamin. So I run up to her. I got a four-year-old who's crying, utterly devastated, and now I've got a five-year-old who's just beside herself, crying. I can't get her to move. I have to pick her up. And they cry all the way to the finish line, where Bethany is glorying and reveling in her victory over younger and lesser opponents. So, um, you know, I I try to calm the kids down. Benjamin's pretty upset. Harper's really upset. And I think, what have I done as a father? Um, so I come up with an ingenious plan, which many of you have shamefully done as well. We're going to have another race, but this time, if you finish, you get a piece of candy, right? That's what we do now in schools. Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody gets a ribbon. Well, I did it too. Everybody gets a piece of candy. So um, instantly the tears dry up. They're ready. They're excited. And I, I decided to stagger the start to give it a little, little fairer you know, odds or whatever. Um, I send them off. And they ran hard the whole way. None of them quit. None of them gave up. They were super excited, right? Um, and I think this illustrates the reality of the necessity of hope in our lives. When you lose hope, you can't run. What's the point, right? And so I, I want to talk to you today about hope and true hope, the, the, the necessity of hope in each and every one of us. Um, this, this idea of hope is not foreign to our culture. Uh, everyone knows that hope is really important. It's a necessary thing. Just the, the very word hopeless um, carries a very negative connotation. I don't, I don't even need to define it for you. You know it's something that you want. And at Christmas time, we see it in particular in, in the, the holiday ads. You know, if you, if you go to the right jeweler or you purchase the right car and put a bow on top or you buy the right consumer electronics and put them under the tree, there's all kinds of hope offered to you in these things. You know, a better future, a happier family, a better relationship, uh, true love. The, ho- the culture is, is, is playing on this, this need, this desire for hope in our hearts. Uh, we don't just see it in the commercial world. We see it in the political realm. I watched the, the Republican debate last night, and the moderator wanted each 
person to tell, to, to tell the American people exactly how many jobs they're going to provide in their administration, which is laughable to me. I mean, how, how much power can one person have over that sort of thing? But they want, people want hope, and they look to political figures for it. Perhaps you saw this poster a few years back. That's pretty telling, right? I mean, there's a political person's face and the word hope underneath. It's saying, believe in me, believe it, trust in me, I can make things better. We also see this just personally in our own lives. Uh, how many of you get excited about Fridays? This, just the, the day. There is nothing different about, the, the, about Friday other than the hope of Saturday. Right? I mean, seriously, you still get up, you still go to work, you still do your thing, you still come home. It's, it's a work day like any other day. But there's something special because, because it has, we are hoping that the next day will be, will be Saturday. We'll get to bum out around the house or whatever we do. Um, we see this in our family. The kids, every night before we put them down to bed, they want to know what, what are we going to do in the next day. They, they want to know, before I go to bed, what can I be looking forward to? Whenever one of the kids finishes a birthday, they, be, they immediately begin to look forward to and talk about the next birthday, right? We had to outlaw that in our, in our house. We had to say, you can start to talk about your birthday a month before your birthday, but not before. It was, it was getting ridiculous. Um, and, and, you know, Christy and I do this too. We, we'll, uh, we'll stop and take kind of take a pulse on things and say, hey, what are you hoping for? What are you looking forward to? What can we, what can we be excited about? It's, it's something that's it's a necessity. I came across this quote by Hal Lindsey, ironically enough, uh, for this topic. Some of you will know why that's ironic. Others of you, it doesn't matter. Um, and he says this, man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but only for one second without hope. I would submit to you that hope is a necessity for each and every one of us. And it's with that in mind, I'd like to uh, direct our attention to the scriptures. If I'm reading out of the passage, I'll let you just go ahead and read that out of your Bible. If we're quoting other verses, I'll put the verses up on the screens. So let's open our Bibles and look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church, and he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. The first thing I want you to see, Paul's making a pretty bold claim here. He's talking to the brothers, which could also be translated brothers and sisters. He's talking to the Christians in Thessalonica. And he said, there's something different about the way you should handle grief and death and this whole hope, this whole hope discussion. He says, those that are not in Christ have no hope, right? That's what he says. Don't grieve as others who do who have no hope. Paul understood um, what we can you know, observe in our culture as well, this reality that the world has no lasting hope to offer. I would submit to you that we live in a hope vacuum today, and everyone's desperately trying to fill it. There are, there are several worldviews that kind of dominate the way people think in our culture today, and they're not unlike some of, the, some of the views that others held in the day that Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. One common view is called secular humanism, and you see this a lot in the institutions and the universities in our culture. Um, to break that down, simply secular means 
the belief, uh, the, the disbelief in the existence of any sort of deity or supernatural power, any sort of um, enduring afterlife or something of that nature. And humanism talks about this, this, uh, this belief, this trust that mankind is at the center of, of what it is to, to, to be successful and to, um, to flourish here on this planet. And, and mankind is our only source of hope. Um, well, if that's the case, how are we doing? If mankind is, is all we have to hope in, how are we doing? This idea of humanism really began to, to come to the forefront and rise up in the mid-1800s and then kind of reached its pinnacle going into the 20th century in the early 1900s. We had come through the Industrial Revolution. Man had created steam engines and, and and inventions that were changing the way people lived their lives. Um, we were trusting in science. Uh, the science of eugenics was really big at this time. You might recall a war fought over that, um, over that reality. Um, education was, was held up as, hey, this is what man, if we can educate man, we'll, we'll fix all these problems that plague us as a people. And politics, you know, that's a man centered sort of thing, if we could get the right system, and we tried Marxism and communism and capitalism, and we felt if we can get the right political system, that's where we should put our hope. That will fix things. Well, how did we do? The 20th century was the century that, that had more war, more bloodshed, more poverty, and more need than any century in the history of the world. And so people began to recognize that the things that they had put their hope in, this humanistic hope, um, wasn't panning out so well. And so um, worldviews have kind of diverged since then. One that's common in our culture today is called postmodernism, which basically rejects any sort of uh, formal system to try to order or orient anything. Um, and it, fo- it focuses on the personal experiences. So now hope is, is sold or is, is, uh, is thought of more in terms of your personal relationships, uh, your success, your own pleasure, um, an experience that you might have, a job. Um, and yet people, even people with great resources that experience all these incredible things personally, we have story after story after story coming out of Hollywood that that does not satisfy. That hope is not a true hope. Um, over the last 20 years, the diagnosis of depression has increased 400%. Um, we've seen the increase in, sus- in substance abuse of addictive substances. What we've seen is the ultimate reality that unless your hope can address man's greatest problem, it is insufficient. Uh, Leo Tolstoy uh, came to this conclusion in a a book that he wrote toward the end of his life. He had experienced many of the things that that postmodern thinkers desire today, that that experiential uh, hope of of relationships, gambling, sex, drugs, uh, success, money. He had been through it all. And here's what continued to plague him through that, this question. He says, what meaning has my life that the inevitability of death does not destroy? Paul says in this passage that the world has no hope because there's only one hope that can endure the universal reality of death. The world has no hope, but we have a transcendent, enduring hope. Look at what 1 Peter chapter 1 says. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, 
kept in heaven for you. It's transcended, it's enduring, it alone can answer Tolstoy's question dealing with the inevitability of death. And so now having, uh, having looked at this reality that Christian hope is different, I'd like to now look at the nature of Christian hope. We'll continue in our passage, uh, picking up in verse 14 of chapter 4. Paul says, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry uh, of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Looking at the nature of Christian hope, there's a lot in this passage to fuel your hope to hang your hat on. We, we read that there will be a resurrection. And it's a resurrection in a physical body that's modeled by Christ's resurrection body. Those who have died aren't going to miss out on anything. The dead in Christ will rise first. They won't, they won't miss out. And we will always be with the Lord. See, the people at this time, they believed in the return of Jesus. But they, they thought it would be soon. So they didn't know how to react when, they, when their loved ones began to die. They thought, hey, this is, this is happening soon. What's, what's going on? And Paul's writing to assure them that the nature of their hope, it's a secure hope. It withstands the reality, the inevitability of death. And so I wanted to focus in on one thing in this passage that I think, I think is key and gives us some insight um, into the, this dilemma that they were struggling with and into the nature of Christian hope. And that's this idea of, of sleep. Paul talks about those who are asleep. Why does he use that word as a euphemism for death and not just simply say those who have died? Well, I think um, there's some significance to that, and I'd like to share that with you. Uh, but first, I'd, I'd like to say, here, here's, the, here's the wrong interpretation, if I, if I can be honest. Um, and folks uh, outside Christian circles have, have taken it this way. Um, some have, have you know, thought that perhaps this, this idea of sleep means that when you die, you simply go into a state of unconsciousness and just kind of cease to exist until Christ comes back and raises, raises your body. Um, there's, some pretty, there's some pretty strong scriptural evidence that that's not what Paul meant here. Um, let's look at Philippians 1. Um, you have the Apostle Paul, he's writing to a different church here, and he's talking about, he's kind of musing over this reality of the end of his, his physical life here on earth. And he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think you heard Charlie uh, quote that earlier. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor, labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is better. And so we know from this passage, as well as from the end of, uh, of, the, cha- of the passage that we're studying today, um, Paul says that therefore, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Christ. We know this reality that when we depart from the body, we're, we're with Christ. We don't, there's, no, there's no ceasing there. There's no unconscious slumber. Um, so why does Paul use that term? Why does he use the term sleep? Um, I think the answer is found in the definition of dead. He didn't want to communicate this. When you look up dead in the dictionary, it says no longer living, 
departed from life, right? That's what that means. But that's not accurate. These people had lost loved ones. They had died. But Paul's not going to call them dead because they are not no longer living. They, they, they are alive and well, but they've gone through a transition. See, the, the reality is that Christians never die, and Paul took the care and time to communicate that, even in the language that he used in this letter. Let's look at a few other passages that communicate this reality. These are the very words of Jesus through, uh, in the Gospel of John, and I think that they're incredible. Uh, let's look at this. This is truly, truly, Jesus is speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Next, uh, next passage, in John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Last one, for God so loved the world, hopefully you've heard this before, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life is unending, unbroken. Uh, Jesus says, if you believe in him, you'll never die. Now, what, is, what does this mean? Um, we, we all experience physical death. And I was listening to a sermon by John Piper, who's an author and a preacher that I really respect, a few uh, months back. And he was, trying to, he was trying to illustrate and pull out this reality of what we experience as believers in Christ. What, what these verses in John um, tell us, and what Paul's language in this passage communicates, is that if you're a believer, you will never experience death. Consciously, your spirit, your soul, you will never experience death. The moment that you breathe your last breath, you are in conscious um, relationship and the presence of the Lord. So you don't have to fear that moment of the end of your life because it's merely a transition to something much, much greater. Jesus says he is life. And at that moment, you'll know him in relationship in, in a deeper and more profound way than ever before. For some reason, I always thought of it like I die I really experience death, and then, you know, a few minutes later, a few hours later, I kind of wake up in heaven disoriented and try to figure out what's going on. That's not, that's not what the Lord says. You never experience death if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus. Um, I saw this illustrated in an email that my father sent me a few weeks ago. Um, his cousin was, was very ill. She had battled uh, cancer for, I believe, 15 months. And um, her husband wrote this email of her last moments. He says, a little before she passed away, Sue asked for a drink of water. And then she said, he's coming. Chuck, her husband, said, who's coming? She replied, Jesus is coming. Chuck said, yes, but not now. Sue replied, now. And she slipped away. He writes, there's no doubt where she is, and there's no doubt where, she, where we will be as long as we stay faithful to Jesus Christ, our personal Savior. You will never taste death if you're a believer in Christ, and she didn't. Um, kids understand this, this idea well. For some reason, it's harder as adults to, to grasp this and really believe it. I had the opportunity a few weeks back to go visit my aunt in Illinois who was very near um, this transition. She loved the Lord. She, her faith was strong, and she was very, very weak. And um, we visited her, and a few days later, she passed away. And I told Bethany, who came with me, um, and her reaction was, was exactly what all of ours should be. It was one of joy. She was excited for Aunt Bo. She, what do you think Aunt Bo's doing now? You know, she, she asked me, and I had to think of, well, what, 
you know, what would she be doing in the presence of the Lord? And we talked about it, and it was a very easy and uh, an obvious thing for her to have hope and to rejoice in this truth. I have another friend who's uh, a young friend whose grandmother passed away. He's, uh, I think, six, five or six, and he, every day, uh, he gets up on the back of the couch that, that that's, uh, backs up to their picture window, and he talks to his grandma out the, out the window um, because he knows she's in the presence of the Lord. She's not in some unconscious state waiting for something to happen. She's with God, um, and he thinks, hey, maybe she can hear me. Uh, so I, I just think that's, that's very significant. We have this innate desire uh, to live, and in Christ, that desire is fulfilled. It's met. You will not die. Um, so that's, uh, that's a significant characteristic of the nature of our hope as Christians. Uh, next, I'd like to look at the timing of this hope. And uh, we'll pick back up in chapter 5, verse 1 in 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no, uh, no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware of that day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The first thing to note is this phrase, the day of the Lord. And in some of your Bibles, it may even kind of have a subheading over chapter 5 that says the day of the Lord. This was a very common phrase uh, to Jews at this time. And it's a common Old Testament phrase. It, it, it spoke of and, and uh, dealt with the day of God's vengeance, uh, wrath, and judgment when God would send his warrior king to destroy those who oppress him and bring healing and redemption good name, right? Redemption uh, to the whole world. The day of the Lord is when uh, God's servant would return and punish the disobedient and save the faithful. And many Old Testament passages speak of the nearness of this day, that it's coming, and it encourages people to hope and wait for that. In fact, um, Paul and many of his contemporaries, before they understood the gospel, were, were confused about this. They felt that the day of the Lord's judgment and redemption would occur at the same time uh, that, that the work that Christ did uh, would occur. They didn't realize it was a, a two-part prophecy where Christ came initially so that on the day of the Lord, some of us could be saved. Because if he didn't come first and offer a sacrifice for our sins and he came to punish the unjust, we would all be punished. So um, they, they didn't understand that, but they looked forward to the day of the Lord, and that's what that refers to. Um, the second thing I want you to, to understand, and it's very clear in this passage, is that no one knows when this will happen. Uh, Paul says that uh, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. How does a thief in the night come if they're going to come to rob you? They'll leave you, they'll leave you a note. Do they encrypt it? And if you're really good at math, you can decipher the code and figure out when they're coming? No. The thief in the night comes suddenly, unexpectedly. 
Um, that's his point. And, and just to make it uber clear, Ma- uh, Jesus says this in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 24. Um, this is a long passage, but I want to read all of it because I think it really does apply to, to what we're talking about today. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father only. He's saying, Jesus is saying, he, not, not even the Son. He, do, he doesn't even know when this is going to happen. For as, the day, uh, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be left in a field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is significant today. And frankly, it's significant across all of history. Um, it seems every, every couple of years, somebody's got the, they've got the code, they've cracked it. They've figured out the day and the time and the manner that, in which Jesus is returning. Um, this passage is clear. No one knows when Christ is returning, but it's equally clear that he is returning. And it will be, it, it will be sudden um, and unexpected. Uh, maybe, maybe you can relate to this. So, so, so the question is, okay, if, if, God is, if, if Jesus is returning, it could happen at any time, and Paul says, stay awake, be sober, don't, you know, don't forget this truth, be ready. Um, how, how can you be ready? How many of you have had the experience when you're pregnant and you know that baby's coming soon, and so you pack a bag, right? You pack a bag and you set it by the door or by the bed so that when that baby comes, if he or she comes in the middle of the night, you're ready. You're prepared. Um, Paul wants us to do the same thing. Um, I think of it like, my, like how my kids behave when they know we're coming home. So if we go on a long trip and they know they've got a few days with the, you know, the grandparents, some of their discipline can slack a little bit. You know, they're, they're not maybe quite as respectful as they should be. Maybe they ask for, a, you know, more candy than they should or something like that. Uh, but when it's time, when mommy and daddy are coming home, or when we get there, man, things change, right? And then we get the report and we got to deal with all that. But, but there's a difference when they believe we're coming back and when they w- believe that, that our return is imminent, there's a change in their behavior. We want to believe that Christ's return is imminent, and we want to act in a way that, that, we would, um, that would be a way of, of worship when he returns. And in fact, he's here. I mean, it's not like he's, he's off on a long trip and doesn't know what's going on. He's here with us. Um, so that's a good thing. Um, but perhaps, perhaps you think like, like I did. Um, perhaps you've studied the idea of Christ's return, and you've got a system in your mind. Of, you've got everything defined. It's going to happen. This is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And then Christ is going to return. And so maybe you thought like I did when I was younger that, hey, until these things happen, I don't really have to worry about it because he's not coming back. Maybe, maybe you've thought that way. Um, well, that would not be in accordance with what the Scripture says. It's going to be sudden, and it could happen at any time. That's very, very clear. You must believe his return is imminent. If your eschatology precludes this belief, it is not in line with Scripture's charge. 
So here's a good principle as we think about the coming of the Lord. You need to let the clear passages in Scripture interpret and inform the unclear passages. It's a good, it's a good uh, study to study end times, a study of eschatology, to look at what's going what's to happen surrounding the Lord's return. That's a good thing. Scripture talks about it. We should study it. But there are certain passages that are clear, and there are certain passages that are unclear. And we want to make sure that we major on the clear things. We want to major on what, what we read in this passage, that we need to be ready. He could come at any moment, and we should conduct ourselves um, in light of that reality. Um, maybe, maybe you're not waiting for physical signs, but maybe you've said something like this, or perhaps you know someone who've waited. You know, I, I was thinking, hey, I'll just wait till I see the tribulation get you know, locked and loaded, ready to go, and then I'll get, I'll get serious about this Jesus thing. Well, maybe you're not waiting for like a, like a biblical tribulation, but maybe you're waiting for a personal tribulation. Um, there are a lot of people who, who say, that, that God stuff, that's all good, um, but I'm young, I'm healthy, I'll wait on that. You know, I'll wait until I have kids, I'll wait until I've got cancer, I'll wait until some other time, some other tribulation. Well, Scripture doesn't afford you that option necessarily. He could come at any moment, and so we need to be ready. That's clear. Um, next, I'd like to look at the assurance of this hope. So we've looked at the nature of Christian hope. We've looked at the timing of this hope. I'd like to look at the assurance of the hope that we have. In chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And then we look at uh, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, as we consider the assurance that we have of this hope. Paul writes, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or are asleep, we might live for him. How are we assured of this hope based on those passages? It's, it's because of Christ's work, not our own. And that's a really good thing. Because if our hope was contingent upon our own efforts, we'd be in a world of trouble. And frankly, God wouldn't have had to come and die if, if we could have figured it out on our own. Um, it's, he, he, Paul offers up as a certainty the reality of Christ's death and resurrection. And we can look to his death and identify with, with him. And we can look to his resurrection and say, that's our guarantee. That's how we know we will have a resurrection body. He's gone before as a first, first fruits of what, what is to come. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talks about this as he's writing to the church in Corinth. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. This passage says we, we can be certain of the resurrection because Christ represented us in his death and in his resurrection, just the way Adam represented us in his sin and his fall. That's good news. That's good news. There's a great exchange that takes place. Christ takes on our condition, our sin, pays our penalty, and then rises to give us hope for our resurrection in the future. Um, Jesus died to give us this hope. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5. This is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. It says, For our sake, he made him, so God made Christ, to be sin 
who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Again, this great exchange took place. Christ became our representative in death so that we would never know death as a believer. He took death for us so that now we experience life in him and resurrection when he returns. Um, this is very, very good news. I'd like to close with, uh, with my last point. And if you have, uh, have studied the Bible and learned the original languages, if you've learned Greek, you're probably sitting on the edge of your seat and wondering why I've in- completely missed the point of this passage. Um, all this stuff has been kind of like the setup for Paul's main point. And Greek is a really cool language. It's the original language that, the, that much of the New Testament was written in because there's, there's unique verb tenses that the author can use at his disposal to, com- at his disposal to communicate um, significant ideas and passages and to kind of highlight, hey, this is really, really important. And the most uh, significant verb tense he can use is a present active imperative verb. And this is the first, this passage contains the very first one of those in the entire book. So what scholars tell us, and I'm not a scholar, but what, what I read and what I've learned from some, some men here at the church that, that know this stuff, um, is that the entire book so far, the entire study has been a setup for when Paul uses this verb. And when this book was being read out loud to the church at Thessalonica, when they heard this verb tense, everybody would have gone, oh. That's what, that's what he wants us to do. Okay, this is, this is really important. This is like, uh, you know, flares going up, fireworks, arrows, the whole bit. If you want to circle this in your Bible, this is so far, um, this is the kind of central theme of the book. All right, we see it in two places in this passage, and it's the same verb. Uh, verse 18 of chapter 4, I skipped it intentionally before. Paul says, therefore, so he just got done talking about what, can we, what can we can look forward to. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. He says it again in chapter 5 at the end of uh, verse 11. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. That's it. That's the big deal for, for this book. That's the point of why Paul is writing. That's why he's, he's giving us this hope. He wants us to encourage one another. He wants us to be sober-minded, to remember these realities and live in accordance with them. And sadly, so many use these passages not to encourage one another, but to be divisive, to divide, to argue, to scare people. Um, that's, that's not Paul's intent. That's not the point of the passage. We argue over secondary issues when Paul's emphasis is clear. Jesus is returning. It will be obvious Those who have already died will not miss out, and we have great hope. He wants us to encourage one another. Well, in order to do that, we need to be personally encouraged um, initially. Uh, Paul wants us to know that we can bank on this stuff. We can take it to the bank. He says earlier in that passage, hey, this is a word from the Lord. I'm saying to you a word from the Lord. It's like God told me. I picked up the bat phone, the direct line. This is certain. This is really certain, so encourage each other. Um, I think this quote by C.S. Lewis is really informative as it relates to this idea. He says, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire 
the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Why is this easy for children to think of heaven and believe and, 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 and hold tightly to that hope, and yet we, we forget, we drift off, we get drunk on the world and forget to be sober-minded and to think and dwell on these things? Well, Paul wants us to remember this. He wants us to encourage each other with these truths. Um, this takes practice. And the, the way I like to do it is I like to look at um, the desires that the Lord has not fulfilled on this earth. He's allowed, he's allowed us. You know, when you become a Christian, all your desires don't just automatically get fulfilled. He allows you to continue to, to yearn for things and want for things. And, and what I like to try to do as a way to encourage my heart and remember and focus on these truths is I like to, to remind myself and even work out in my mind how my hope of heaven and how my hope of being in the presence of Jesus is a fulfillment of that desire. So here's one example. Here's a, a picture of one of my favorite places. Perhaps you'll recognize this. That's Red Mountain in the back. Um, this is Hawes Trail, which is a great mountain biking trail if you're a mountain biker. Um, one of my favorite places on earth to go. And then this next picture, those are the houses that have the view of the previous picture that I will never live in because they cost millions of dollars. And I ride by them at least once a week. And my desire is, is kindled, that desire to live in that beautiful house and have that incredible view and be close to the things I love to do is kindled. And at that moment, I have an opportunity to be heavenly minded, to encourage my heart and to encourage, frankly, some of the guys I ride with of this reality, that my hope is not in having that incredible house. My hope is in heaven with Christ where that desire, that very desire will be met far beyond anything that I could ask or imagine. My wife uses the analogy of waffles, of hot waffles. She says, you know, I just want, so it's not always the big things. It's not always a house or a car, right? It could be, it could be hot waffles. She's an amazing servant. She makes breakfast for the family, and she never gets to eat hot waffles. If you know anything about a waffle coming out of a waffle iron, you have about 15 seconds to eat that sucker before it gets soggy, right? It's hot. It's crispy. I mean, I almost, like, eat it on the way to the, to the table because I just, I just want to get it while it's crispy and good. Um, well, Christy, Christy remembers each morning when she's cooking for us, whenever we have waffles, hey, I can, I'll have hot waffles in heaven. <laughs> kind of funny, but it's true. You know, there's a, there's a desire that's gone unmet there. And, and if we're honest, we have desires all, all throughout our lives. Daily, you experience this. And you can take those, those thoughts captive. You can remind yourself of this great hope. And you can say, I don't have to despair. I, I, have, I have promised for, for a greater fulfillment in the presence of Jesus in heaven. Um, this last verse, let's take a look at Ephesians uh, 2, and we'll close. Um, Look at this, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. See, this is certain. This has already happened. Um, he says, uh, in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages, okay, this is our hope, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Everybody understand the immeasurable riches? Is that easy to get your head around? That's not hard, right? That's impossible. How do you, how do you understand immeasurable riches? Well, one of, the, one of the things I thought of as I was trying to kind of 
illustrate this to my own heart, and perhaps this will be helpful, is I thought of the play Annie. Any of your kids like Annie? No? Yes? Um, well, Annie is this orphan, this little orphan that's treated terribly. She lives in an orphanage. She eats mush. She's got very little. She has the you know, clothes on her back, and that's it. She, she gets to go live with Daddy Warbucks, who's a billionaire in his mansion, and she experiences immeasurable riches. And day by day by day, she experiences a new gift that Daddy Warbucks gives her, a new dress. You know, she realizes there's a pool inside. There's a tennis court. There's uh, toys that she's never had a toys to play with. She gets that. And each time, um, you know, she thinks she's, she's maxed out on what's good. She, there's, there's more. There's more. And this is what, I, I think it's just a small picture of what God, our Father, is looking forward to and has already begun in our lives of, of blessing us and showing us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So if we can, if we can remember this stuff, it will help us get through everyday life when we're frustrated about eating soggy waffles or not being able to live, you know, with a great, great mountain view or whatever it is that might, um, might vie for your affections at the moment. Uh, so that's my, that's my hope, my prayer for you. And the cool thing about heaven is we're not just recipients. We get to share those riches with our community, with our friends and loved ones there um, in the presence of the Lord. So in conclusion, uh, Paul's really clear what he wants us to do with this passage, with this hope. He wants us to encourage one another. That means we have to talk about this. That means we have to think about it. The idea of heaven isn't just for kids. It's not a childish idea. This is for us. We need to encourage one another. And if you're not a Christian, if you haven't placed your faith and hope in Christ, um, Jesus' words in John 11, let's look at those one more time. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's the question that the Lord is asking you today. He could come at any time. Um, and so my prayer would be that you answer that with, with a yes and that you in this, these next moments that we have together would go to him in prayer and, and ask him uh, to be your Lord and Savior and to place your hope and trust in him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the great hope that we have. We thank you that it is so clear that you are returning, that it will be obvious those who have already died will not miss out. In fact, they're in your presence now. That's why Paul uses the term asleep. Um, and we have great hope. God, thank you for that reality. I pray that you'd encourage our hearts and we would encourage the hearts of those around us with that great hope. And that those who have not yet found that hope, God, I pray that by your spirit, you would open their eyes to see this truth and they would respond. Um, God, thanks for your grace. Thanks for your mercy. Thanks for this time now of communion to celebrate the great sacrifice, the great cost that you paid so that we could know this hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are going to move now into a time of communion. Uh, This is for those who have put their hope in Christ and his finished work on the cross. If you're in that boat, please join us. The communion elements are on the tables here under the screens as well as in the the center of the room. Uh, You can take those anytime between now and the end of the service. Um, We also have giving boxes in the back. If you're a regular part of our church, if you'd consider this your home, we'd love for you to worship the Lord in that way. And we'll also be singing together um, some great songs that Melissa picked that, that deal with this idea of our hope and our future.